San Diego State University professor Gene Twinge studied three decades of research into why people, or I should say into trying to answer the question why in modern society people are more assertive, more entitled, and yet more miserable than ever. She published her her work in two books, the first one, Generation Me, and the second one, The Narcissism Epidemic. And she studies these things uh, everywhere from taking note of film, TV shows, magazines that are being produced today to personality tests and even enlistment and enrollment uh, statistics in armed services. All this trying to demonstrate that those born since 1970 are more self-centered, more disrespectful of authority, and yet more depressed than ever before, more medicated because of their depression. She writes, quote, America's cultural focus on self-admiration has caught a flight from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes with performance-enhancing drugs, phony celebrities via TV and YouTube, phony genius students with grade inflation, phony national debt with $11 trillion of government debt, phony friends with social networking and the explosion of those media. All this fantasy, she says, might feel good, but unfortunately, reality always wins, end quote. You might say the same thing's true spiritually. People have sought out churches that will give them an inflated view of their spirituality, an inflated view of who they are before the Lord, a feel-good message that strokes their spiritual pride. But the problem, unfortunately, is that reality always wins. I mean, you can lie to someone all you want about who they are spiritually, but there are certain laws, if you want to say it that way, that are operative in this world that they cannot escape if they're pursuing a life of sin, if they're walking in a way that doesn't please the Lord, or more importantly, if they don't know the Lord at all. Now, this is really kind of at the heart of what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 6, and I invite you to look with me there. As Paul lays out a number of principles and statements, but central to all of them is this in verse 7 of chapter 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that'll he'll also reap. I mean, you can have a feel-good message for a while. You can have someone puff you up for a while, but reality always wins. It's another way of saying that. Narcissism has infiltrated the church. It has become the defining factor of the modern church. Churches that cater to people's personal affinities, personal preferences. They attract thousands with promises of prosperity and health and wealth. It defines churches that tailor their messages around people's felt needs and contextualize worldly interests. The tragedy of all this narcissistic approach to ministry, however, that that uh, that sort of produces, uh, or, or aids, I should say, in the production of Generation Me. 
The tragedy in all of it is that you have a generation of church that has little interest in self-examination at any real level. Little interest in ministering to other people. Little interest or appetite in suffering for the sake of truth. And especially when it comes to long-suffering with one another. In short, this generation has basically turned the church into a personalized entertainment hub instead of a body of believers united as one family under God. And worse than that, there's a spiritual barrenness in people's lives that have come with this. They're trying to build an inflated spiritual image, but reality is always catching up to them. Like Professor Twinge's message about society, this stuff may feel good for a moment, but you have to realize reality always wins. You might say this is Paul's message in Galatians 6. He is seeking to inject a strong dose of reality into the arms or the lives of people who have an inflated spiritual facade. He's trying to slap them beside the face with the stark realities of spiritual truth, of what it means to be a spiritual person. Remember, this is really what this whole section is about. Going back into chapter 5, he's trying to define what spiritual life looks like. He's already sort of debunked, as you go on through the book, that it's not some legalistic attendance to Old Testament laws. But spiritual life is characterized by certain attitudes, certain mindsets, certain fruits that he lays out in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. Those who walk in the Spirit then, in turn, ministering by those fruits, he says, they will be reaching out to others, not at the end of chapter 6, becoming conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, excuse me, at the end of chapter 5, but instead at the beginning of chapter 6, they will be reaching out to those who are wayward. They will be seeking to be involved with the lives of those who are caught in sin and seeking to restore them. In other words, Paul's saying a spiritual person is someone who on one hand exhibits godly character, and on the other hand, they're actively involved in aiding others to develop it. That's what a spiritual person is. That's what a spiritual person looks like. They're filled with fruits of the Spirit, and they're actively involved in helping others see that same reality in their life. Now, the problem is that there are a number of factors that hinder churches, or you might even say break it down to the individual level. There are a number of factors that hinder individuals from ever truly experiencing spiritual life. Church is a ritual to them. Church is some, as we said, entertainment hub for them. Some further extension of their own narcissistic pursuits, whatever it might be. But in all of that facade, they never really taste what true spirituality is. Well, those hindrances that keep them from that are really what Paul turns to address in the remainder of chapter 6. After describing sort of what a spiritual person looks like, he begins to address obstacles that would keep you from becoming that kind of person. 
sort of warnings, if you will, as you move through these verses that speak about all that is necessary in building this kind of a spiritual life for, for obstacles, for pitfalls, we might say, on the pathway to spirituality, things like pride, foolishness, disobedience or unbelief, weariness. Or we could turn them around and say they're sort of the ingredients, the necessary virtues to building spirituality. We could talk about humility, spiritual wisdom, belief, and perseverance. All of this still addressing what it means to walk in the Spirit. People read this, by the way, and they just sort of get lost in all of the individual statements, they think that somehow Paul has gotten lost, somehow he's digressed, somehow he's lost focus. But really, everything that he's saying, beginning in chapter 6, verse 3, and going all the way through particularly verse 10, is a collection not of random sayings or proverbial axioms. He doesn't lose sight of what he's talking about. All of this is laying out for us what it means to walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, to be a spiritual person. Let me just begin by reading this context for us as we frame it in our minds. Paul says in verse 3, If anyone thinks that he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each person, or each one, excuse me, test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Several pitfalls on the pathway to spirituality that Paul addresses as we move through these verses. The first one is found for us in verses 3 through 6, and we will just call it pride pride. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, Paul says, he deceives himself. You'll notice the word for at the beginning of verse 3. It's sort of connecting this to what Paul had just said. He isn't digressing. He isn't deviating into some random list of of, uh, remaining thoughts as he's trying to wrap up this epistle. He is explaining, or he's getting at what he has just said about restoring wayward brothers and sisters. He's explaining what it means when he said in verses 1 and 2 that we're to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And what it means to bear one another's burdens. He's elaborating on what keeps us from doing that. And basically what he's saying is, is that you're hindered sometimes from doing that because you think too highly of yourself. You think that you're something when in fact you're nothing. 
Some people think that Paul's trying to distinguish here between those people in the church who would come in and be just pretenders versus those who are true luminaries, the true heavyweights of spirituality in the church. And he's trying to kind of rebuking those who would come in and want to assume the first place whenever they haven't really earned it. Unless you're really one of those, he's saying, in other words, don't pretend that you are. Don't deceive yourself. But I really think that misses the whole point of what Paul's trying to say here. He's not trying to establish the true basis on which you can boast in front of other people. He says in verse 4, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself. That is not an invitation for you to boast. That is not establishing some proper criteria now that you can then go use legitimately to boast before other people. In fact, if you were to keep reading in this chapter, you go on down to verse 14, and Paul will say this, Far be it from me to what? To boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, Paul's saying, look, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about Jesus Christ. He's not trying to establish some criteria by which some people could boast in themselves and other people can't. Some some standard by which every person would weigh themselves and have some reason to stand. In fact, what he really wants us to do is to weigh ourselves properly and find ourselves wanting. He's really trying to establish the proper criteria so that we can all see that we have no grounds for boasting. No criteria, whatever. And that, that, that establishing that criteria, what he's trying to lay out or what he's trying to put before us is the measurement, the true measurement that should be in our minds, which is the one we have between us and the Lord. He says each one is to test his own work and then his reason will be a, to reason to boast will be in himself and alone, not in his neighbor, which is generally the way that people try to measure themselves. They look around, they sort of take a look over their shoulder, they check out other people, and they assess themselves on how they're doing based on how everyone else is doing. I mean, it's inevitable. I've, I've had the, 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 the dilemma before of having someone sit in my office and talking to them about their sin. And they say to me, yeah, but pastor, I know certain people in this congregation who are doing worse than me. I know, they say, I've got evidence, I've got proof. They have, they're admitting that they have been collecting the data by which to gauge themselves. And they have gotten into the place of justifying their own weakness and their own sin based on the failures that they know about in other people's lives. Whether it be their marriage, whether it be their personal life, whether it be their finances or whatever. Paul says they're fools. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he talks about those who measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. He says they're without understanding. People in churches can subtly become like that. They can be like the Pharisee who went into the temple 
And what did he pray? He prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Remember that? Luke 18. He says, I, uh, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Not even like that tax collector over there. I fast. I give tithes. That's the way we can become. I mean, we, we kind of take delight to look at maybe some, some list of, of what other people might give or some uh, recognition of how other people might serve. And we might kind of put ourselves in that category somewhere and we kind of take some delight in how we're doing based on how everyone else is doing. They just spend their time comparing and measuring themselves by everyone around them, establishing some pecking order, some reason to boast. Paul says that's not what spirituality is all about. He says if you want to boast, verse 4, let it be in yourself alone. What what does that mean? What's that all about? What does it mean to find the reason of boasting in yourself alone? This is what it means. Paul's looking ahead to the day when you stand before the Lord in judgment. And even if you're a believer, you will stand before the Lord and your works will be judged according to 1 Corinthians 3. Some of them will be burned away. In fact, maybe most of them will be burned away. Wood, hay, and stubble. Some of them will stand the test of fire. And Paul is urging you to look ahead to that day when you stand alone before the Lord. No one else besides you, no accolades from your friends, no standing, no credentials, no titles, nothing but you and the Lord. And if there's any boasting, it will only be the kind of boasting that you could do on that day. Of course, anyone who takes a hard look at that situation knows that they have nothing of which to boast. Nothing of which to boast. This is what Paul means in verse 5. Each will have to bear his own load. Each will have to bear his own load. Some of your translations say each will have to bear his own burden, and that causes confusion for people because back in verse 2, Paul says that we're to bear one another's burdens. Well, first of all, they're different words, different words in the Greek. They're referring to different things. The word for burden back in verse 2 was a word for some massive weight. In fact, it's used in the book of Acts to talk about the cargo that would be loaded onto a ship. The word that Paul uses in verse 5 is really a word for a sack that you might toss over your back, uh, like a personal satchel. So they're really different words, but more importantly, they describe different time frames because verse 2 is a present tense verb talking about what we are currently supposed to be doing. Verse 5 is a future tense in which it's referring to the, the, uh, the, the, the coming judgment that we will all face. He's referring to the future time when you and I stand before the Lord and our own sin and our own burden is what we'll have to weigh ourselves by. He's talking to believers, of course, here. He's not referring to the fact that you're going to have to somehow suffer eternal punishment for your sin. 
If you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Scripture says that the curse of God's wrath has been taken for you or on your behalf by Christ on the cross. The burden is forever off of you. Christ suffered once for all, paying the full price for every one of your sins, past, present, and future. Sacrifice takes every bit of God's wrath and eternal punishment on your behalf. But there's still a judgment, Scripture says. Judgment that you and I will have to bear. It's the judgment in terms of eternal rewards. It's often referred to as the Bema seat of Christ. That's the word that's used in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bimatos of Christ, the bima seat, so that everyone will receive what is due for what He's done in His body, whether good or evil. This is the bema seat of Christ. This is the judgment that you and I will stand before in Christ, the one in which all of our works will be, will be weighed. And it will be, at that time, only you. That's Paul's point. It is only you against God's holy standard and everything that He's demanded of you, every commandment He's given you, every responsibility He's laid on you. That's all that will be there. And Paul says, if you want to boast, you boast in that. Not not, not comparing yourself to how you've done related to other people, but comparing yourself to how you've done based on what everything the Lord has asked of you. Bearing your own load. This is his warning against pride. Don't be deceived. Don't begin to think that you're something when you're nothing. Don't be so puffed up with pride, some false view of your own spirituality, that you suddenly become unwilling to get down into the trenches with the people who are struggling and the people who are wavered. Don't begin to to puff yourself up and, and compare yourself to how much better you're doing than they are, thinking about how you have responded and you have done well, and if they would have been as responsible as you, they wouldn't be in the same position. And so you just sort of turn your nose up against them, unwilling to work with them through their sin. This is precisely what keeps you from ministering in the lives of other people. You presume a position of superiority. You compare yourselves to other, your others. You measure yourself by others. And you conclude that you've done pretty well. You are the responsible one. And you begin to wonder. And look with scorn. On others who haven't done as well. Well that's not the proper way to look at it Paul says. The proper way to look at it is to look at how much you failed. To look at the fact that you're nothing. Not to go around thinking that you're something. That's the proper measure. This is the point of verse 6, by the way. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, some people think that Paul just sort of plunks that in there, some word about paying their pastors. Maybe they've been conditioned that way. Some people have had really bad experiences in churches and they bring up money all the time. Or maybe they've had some bad pastor along the way who's always complaining about how he needs more money. But that would be way 
outside the context of what Paul's talking about. The verse doesn't even say that. He never mentions money or giving or anything like that. The word share here, koinoneto, from which we get fellowship, koinonia, it's basically a word for sharing, but it doesn't necessarily imply financial sharing. It's used that way sometimes. But its basic core sense is mutuality. A mutuality between people. And so Paul is simply returning to the theme of the whole section, which is ministering to the weak and the wayward person. And he's calling those of you who consider yourself to be spiritual, you consider yourself to be mature, you consider yourself to have an understanding of what the Bible's all about, about doctrine, about theology, about the gospel. You consider yourself to have some grasp of that. And his point is, prove it by making an effort to share the blessings of that understanding with others. Share in them. If you've found some blessing in your life, if you have applied the Word of God to your life, and you're seeing the blessings of it in your marriage and in your home and in your career and your life, whatever it might be, if that's what you believe about your life, share it. Go find the people who aren't in those blessings and haven't necessarily grasped those truths or applied those truths and help them work it out into their life. He who has, who's received the word ought to be sharing together and all the good things that come from those who teach. It's essentially the same kind of spirituality that he's referred to back in verse 1. This is what it means to be genuinely spiritual. It will demonstrate itself in an effort to reach out to the wayward and restore them. It will demonstrate itself in an effort to share with them in the blessings of God's Word that you've tasted in your own life. Let the immature and weak share all good things together with the mature and strong. That's the point. That's the point. So, that is one pitfall on the pathway to spirituality, which is just pride. Some people get wrapped up in that. But secondly, we could add to that foolishness. Foolishness. Verse 7, do not be deceived, he says. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. People are just foolish, Paul says. They're foolish. They're self-deceived. They convince themselves that they're going to cheat God's system. They're foolish, and they think that somehow they can continue to sow and to plant one kind of seed, and yet reap a different kind of fruit than the seed they planted. This is just self-deception. This is just foolishness, and it's a pitfall on the pathway to spirituality. It will hinder you from experiencing the kind of fruits that God intends you to enjoy in your life. You say, well, what kind of fruits are you talking about, Pastor? Well, he's already mentioned them back in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And people wonder, you know, why aren't those things, 
why don't I see those things happening in my life? Why isn't my life filled with patience and filled with joy and filled with goodness and filled with self-control? Why, aren't, uh, why am I not seeing those kinds of fruits in my life? Well, the answer is pretty simple because you're not sowing the right kind of seed. You're not sowing the right kind of seed. And it isn't just those fruits, by the way. Those are the core foundation of everything else. But there are other fruits, fruits of ministry, fruits that are born in the lives of those that you are uh, ministering to. That is the implication of verses 9 and 10 when Paul talks about ministering to others. And he says, continue without weariness, knowing that you will reap in due season. So as you continue to minister, there are some fruits that will be sown even in the lives of other people. There are soils that you will be casting the seed of the gospel on that will eventually sprout and bear fruit. There are all kinds of fruit that come from sowing. People want to see those fruits, but they don't want to make the kind of sacrifice that's necessary to sow the seeds for that. They want to have their lives filled with the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as James calls it in chapter 3. But they don't want to make the kind of choices that are going to yield that. And yet Paul says there's an unbreakable principle that's at work in God's creation. Whatever one sows, that he'll also reap. We understand that in the agricultural world, of course. I mean, no one... No one would go out there and assume that they could plant some tomato seeds and reap a crop of corn. I mean, we'd look at them and we'd think, that is ridiculous. Where in the world did you get that kind of idea? Or we wouldn't dare think that we could just sit by idly all year, do nothing, and then suddenly at harvest time, up would sprout a whole harvest of of whatever it is we're looking for when we've done nothing to prepare for that. I mean, it is as obvious to us in the agricultural world. We We just realize that you do not violate those rules. I mean, you can be all mystical as much as you want, and you can believe in all kinds of of uh, maybe miraculous things going on in your life. You can do that all you want, but the reality is you're going to be starving if that's the way that you approach the agricultural world. Because in the normal course of life, it's not the way it works, right? God may break in every now and then into this world. To work miracles, but that's not normally the way it works. So why would you be so foolish as to think that somehow in the spiritual world that you're going to bypass all those rules? Paul says the law of sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting ought to be just as self-evident to you there as it is in the agricultural world. No one is exempt from its dominion, just as in farming, it applies to everyone in every place at every time. The clever and the simple, the experienced and the inexperienced, the young and the old, you cannot bypass this principle. 
And yet some people foolishly think that they will. They're self-deceived, Paul says. And you could really take it a step further and add a third pitfall on the pathway to spirituality based on this same verse, which is just unbelief. Uh, at one level, it is foolishness. At a whole other level, it's unbelief. It's another angle on this because it's not only foolish by some people to think that they can escape this law. For some people, it is downright irreverent. They are trying to mock God, Paul says. Trying to thumb their nose at him. Literally, that's the word comes from the word nose, the word mock here. And it refers to turning your nose up against God. There are certainly those who thoughtlessly kind of go on in the same patterns in which they were raised sowing the same seeds and expecting a different outcome. And then there are those more blatantly who ignore warnings after warning after warning. And they continue on the same path doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. It says mockery. It's an attempt to make a mockery of God and His character. Because that's really what's at stake. God's character is at stake, you see. And because of that, His law will not be overturned. For God to overturn this law of sowing and reaping would be for Him to concede that following the pathway of His character and following the pathway of His law is not the best way. You understand that? For God to allow people to violate this and to continue to go this would be to communicate that there is some other pathway that's better than His way, which is the reflection of His character. It's to communicate that being something other than like God is actually wiser. That you can go out there and you can be selfish and you can be unrighteous. That you can go out there and you can be short-sighted and you can be angry. You can go out there and you can do all those things and you can still get all the benefits that come with righteousness. That's to make a mockery of God's character. And to say it's not necessary. That righteousness and a reflection of who God is is not necessary. All that's to communicate that there are other ways to find blessings. There are other ways to taste the fruit. There are other pathways that are just as good as God. And so if we're not careful, we can become a sort of unbelieving believer. That is to say that you can sit here week in and week out. You can listen to sermons. And you can believe in your heart the gospel of grace, that you're in need of salvation. You can believe that you're a sinner and that you need your sins forgiven. You can believe that there is eternal hell and eternal heaven. You can believe that the cross of Christ saves you. But at the same time, you do not always believe that God's way is best. 
You begin to doubt that His character and His righteousness is the most satisfying, the most pleasing thing that you could ever find. You begin to doubt that it's the most fruitful path that you could walk on. You become an unbelieving believer. That's what you are. You're mocking God. You're mocking God and thinking that some other style of character is acceptable, is better, is more fruitful. So Paul reminds us of the eternal law in verse 8. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's obviously stating the principle in an eternal way, but it's applicable to all of life, whether it's temporal life or eternal life. If you want to harvest spiritual fruit, you won't receive it without sowing spiritual seed. Which as we've outlined over and over again throughout this last couple of chapters, that means walking in the Spirit, which is setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Setting your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Walking in the Spirit is essentially a way of speaking about where you set your mind. And I think especially in this context, it's also a reference to how you minister to others. It is sharing all good things with those who also need to be taught. It is reaching out to the wayward. It is investing in the weak. These are the kinds of investments spiritually that Paul's talking about here. What you fill your mind with, by the books you read, by the company you keep, by the kind of things you set before your eyes, and then how you fill your time, what you are investing your time into, who you are investing your time into. And let's face it, we're primarily referring to your leisure time here. I mean, you don't have a lot of control over a number of your hours. Many of them are spent sleeping. Uh, many others are spent either at work or maybe at school. Bureau of Labor Statistics says that the average person has essentially five and a half hours on average of leisure time every day. So we're basically referring to what you're doing with five hours of your day every day. How much of that five hours is being spent in God's Word, in prayer, ministering to other people? You say, well, that's my time, right? I mean, it's, it's my only downtime, and I want to spend it with the people who make me feel good, the people who help me relax. Well, you can do that, but that's not spiritual. And you're deceiving yourself. Thinking that sowing and sowing to that sort of narcissistic approach to life is ever going to allow you to reap spiritual fruit. How do you spend your time? How do you invest it? What kind of seeds are you sowing? You ought not imagine that somehow you're going to mock God. You're going to receive the benefits and all the joys and the fruits of righteousness. Or even the benefits and the fruits of a flourishing ministry. 
when you're sowing the kind of seeds of self-focused, self-centered life. Because in the end, your character is the product of the seeds you sow in your life, right? Well, finally, you need to be aware of the pitfalls not only of pride and of foolishness and of unbelief, but you need to be aware of the pitfalls of weariness. Weariness. This is equally a part of sowing and reaping. The reality is that there's often a waiting period before you finally get to reap, right? Paul says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Don't give up, he says. Don't grow weary because in due season you will reap. Fruit will eventually come. Some people don't ever see it because they simply give up too early. They get tired, they get frustrated, they get impatient, and so they stop investing in the things that are necessary spiritually, whether it is investing in their own soul personally or whether it is investing in others through ministry. They just grow weary, not believing that the fruit will ever come. So Paul says, don't lose heart. Ministering to others can be taxing work. There are temptations to become discouraged, to slack off, to do things in a half-hearted way. There are temptations to give up altogether and to go begin pursuing things that are more gratifying to your own flesh. But the reality is, Paul's telling us, you can't control the timing of the harvest. All you can do is control your faithfulness in sowing seed and watering seed in cultivating the soil. It's the Lord who brings the harvest in His time. And there's no promise of when it will come. But there is a promise that it will come. That's what you need to focus on. There is a promise. There is is an indelible law, Paul says, an unbreakable law that God's built into His universe, that if you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap, and if you sow, you will reap. And so he says, he tells to us, we will reap in due season if we do not give up. So whether it is growth in your own personal spiritual walk, or whether it's growth in those that you minister to, whether it's growth in your own kids, whether it's growth in your own marriage, it will come, he says, if you don't give up. So then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. Just keep pouring yourself into others. Just keep reaching out to the wayward. That's what spiritual people do. They avoid the pitfalls on the pathway to spirituality. They continue to sow the right kind of seeds over time. Knowing that there's a harvest that awaits them in the end. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer.
Father, we confess that we have at times been drawn in to some of these pitfalls. Weary with the long wait, too often affected by the culture around us, we are drawn in and we are hindered from becoming what you long for us to be. We sow the wrong kinds of seeds because we are foolish and deceived. Lord, I pray that you would correct our understanding. Help us to empty ourselves of all the pride and foolishness and unbelief that would keep us from tasting all the fruits of righteousness that come with being like you. Lord, may we sow the right seeds. May we pursue the right things without growing weary. We ask for your help to this end and for your glory. Amen.